You are listening to the Canadian Bar Association National Magazine. Hello, I'm Eve Figui, the Editor-in-Chief of CBA National Magazine. Welcome to After the Pandemic, a conversation about the future of justice produced with the support of CBA Futures. We've all heard how COVID-19 has triggered a learning revolution across the world. And law schools are no exception. Like everyone else, they've had to transition to online learning. Meanwhile, law societies have been forced to cancel licensing exams and introduce changes to articling terms. This has all been done by necessity, of course, but will it help drive a long overdue discussion about what really needs to change in legal education? For this third episode in our series, we're here to talk about legal education, how it's been affected by the pandemic, but more importantly, how it needs to evolve to respond meaningfully to the access to justice crisis in Canada and help usher in a more modern legal profession that is better equipped to provide value to clients. Even better, we're joined by two great guests today who I guarantee will give us food for thought on what we need to think about when it comes to the future of legal education. The first is the Deputy Executive Director and Director of Professionalism and Policy at the Law Society of Alberta. But before that, she was the Director of Recruitment and PD at Dentons. So she comes to us with a couple of different perspectives. I'm pleased to have with us today, Corey Gitter. Welcome to CBA National, Corey. Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. And what can I say about our second guest? Well, his blog at law21.ca is just required reading for anyone interested in the legal market and where it's headed. He's also the author of Law is a Buyer's Market, Building a Client-First Law Firm for the 21st Century, and is one of the most sought-out legal analysts in Canada and the U.S. and uh, probably a whole bunch of other places, really. Jordan Furlong, welcome back to CBA National. Thank you, Eve. It is terrific to be here. Just some disclosure, I had the pleasure of having Jordan as my editor-in-chief back in the day when I first joined uh, CBA National, so I like to think of him as uh, a mentor of sorts. I don't know if he really wants to take ownership of that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud to. (laughs) But truth is, I I still rely on him immensely for his insight into what's going on in the strangest of industries. Uh, We speak a lot regularly about a lot of really interesting things, and so it's great to have him here today, especially with Corey. I want to get a quick sense from you both, we've seen a necessary and an abrupt shift to online teaching. I'm wondering if you think just quickly in in the law school context, is that going to change our approach to uh, uh, pedagogy? My sense, Eve, is that the the online teaching that we've seen so far, that is to say for the last couple of months of the 2019-20 term, uh, was very much instituted on kind of an emergency basis. We had to do something and we did. and full marks, by the way, to the law schools and to law students, because they, I think, adjusted pretty well to that, um, much better than I think maybe some courts and law firms did. So the question then becomes, okay, if we have to do this again come the fall and winter, and it is distinctly possible that we, that we will, are we going to continue on in, in, this, in the same vein? Now, I don't think we can. I don't think we can continue to just have everybody plug into a Zoom account and do the class as we would have done before. We are going to have to start thinking about ways to not so, not so much emergency remote teach, but online learn. And there's a couple of great uh, pieces out there about this right now. Alice Woolley used to be a prof at University of Cal- uh, 
Calvary, I'm going to say, and also um, now 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 uh, judge at the Court of Appeal, Court of Queen's Bench in Alberta, yeah, Court of, Court of Queen's Bench. I apologize, Court of Queen's Bench, yeah, and uh, Peter Sankman as well, who who's a criminal law uh, criminal law prof and, and practitioner. So the the problem though is that we haven't really got our heads wrapped around, and I say this from a legal educational point of view. Uh, around what we're going to have to shift in terms of our approach, because this isn't just about technology, and this isn't just about what is the method we're going to use. What we have to think about is how are students going to learn, what are they going to learn, and how do we, how do we build something for that? And you know what, here's, here's the, the challenge, and it's a challenge that really speaks to the whole issue facing legal education right now. This system needs a serious rethink and a serious rebuild. And it's something that in the best of times, in the best of situations, would have been a steady, uh, structured build towards something brand new over the course of a few years. Now we've got to do this in a few months' time. So that's going to be our challenge. We need to make some decisions that are going to have far-reaching, uh, far-reaching impacts into the future. And we haven't really necessarily done the homework and laid the groundwork for that yet. Corey, you've maybe uh, done a little bit of homework on this, uh, given what you do. Uh, what, what, how do you see this whole sort of move to the world of online teaching? How do you see it unfold in the coming uh, months, even years? Well, I, th- I think we're in for a ride with it, honestly, because I think that, that what we've been able to do so far and what we've seen so far has just been this effort to replicate what we were already doing in law schools and just transfer it online. And that is clearly not going to be sustainable. And in fact, in, in the past, we used to, I think, as a profession, quite look down on online learning. Um, and we haven't been equipped, really, to know what the capabilities of online learning are as a profession. So as with many things in this, this very uh, how many t- unprecedented times, how many times will we say that today, there's an opportunity here to really try to figure out how to best have students learn online and, and, and what opportunities there are there to really change uh, how we view legal education. And one of the things I think will be interesting about that is, and I think we'll probably talk about this some more today, but the culture of law school is, is such a unique thing. And it's very much built on that interpersonal interaction and that imbuing of what it is to be a lawyer and uh, you know, all those conversations that happen in the hallways at, at law school. And when we lose that, in some measure, how are we going to replace that? How are we going to replace that socialization? And should we replace that socialization in, in the same way? So I, I, I think that we're in for a bit of a ride and there'll be a lot of experimentation. And, and I, I sort of welcome that because I think usually we are, we're hesitant to experiment. And I think this is going to force legal educators to, to be a bit more bold and how they deliver their material. I think people worry about that a lot, though, is replacing that in-person socialization aspect. Jordan, should we, how, how do we protect that? Should we be protecting that to some extent? And should we fight for that a little bit when we, as we, as we think of introducing uh, more, a bigger role for online learning in teaching these students? Oh, for, oh, for sure. I mean, the thing we have to keep in mind is, we're talking now about coming up for fall 2020 and the winter 2021 session, right? Which again, we should reasonably expect is going to be held partially or mostly online. And depending on how bad things get out there, this could extend into the next year. But I think we can reasonably suppose that by 2025, 
the pandemic will have passed, right? You know, or thereabouts. Hopefully, <laughs> if it's still going at that point, we have bigger problems in legal education. But so the situation right now where we can't be around each other is a temporary one. That's not to say it's not important. Not to say it shouldn't be solved, but it's temporary. The the thing we need to come out of this with is this idea that in the in future. Legal education should be an integrated mix of both online and in person. I think there is real value to having students come together and work together as a group. But do we need to have that for the entire year for everybody? I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And, and yes, there are things that you lose, but there are also things that you gain. I was talking uh, with a couple of American law professors about a month or so ago, and they were talking about the fact that we're, you know we're doing all these Zoom classes and so forth. And they made a really interesting observation. They said. One of them said, when we're undoing the Zoom class, the chat is open and the chat is nonstop and it's all talking about stuff in the class. And they're discussing issues and they're talking about what we're the subject of the of the of the lecture and so forth. And she said that would never happen in a real class. If anything, that that's two things we hate as professors. They're on their laptops and they're passing notes. <laughs> right. And and now in this situation, they're they're using, if you will, this technology. To, uh, to get an added dimension that wasn't there before. And I think that's the kind of thinking we want to encourage. It's not so much of what are we going to lose? We're going to lose some things for sure, but what can we gain? What, what do you think that is? Do you think that's, uh, you know, students feel more empowered to express themselves in, in a class context? Uh, sometimes some of them will feel more empowered to do so online as opposed to speaking up in class. Is it something like that? Yeah, I think partly, yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've had students tell me, you know, if anything, the gunners are just as bad as they've always been, if not worse, always putting the hand up and everything. Right. Um, but I think also to a certain extent, you're av- okay, take your average law professor and take your average law students and ask, which of these two people is more comfortable with texting, right? And, and, and the student is going to be far more immersed in this culture where you just tap out your thought right in the moment to catch it, to be part of this stream. So it is, and, and that's not the reason why I like it. It's not just as Corey has talked about the experimentation, which is really important, but it's also a shift away from this is what the professor likes, this is what the school has always done, towards the student, the, the future lawyer who's being formed very early on here. This is more about what he or she likes, enjoys, clicks with, engages with, and it's that shift more than any other that is the important one. If we make that shift successfully, all the other stuff, the technology and the curriculum and everything else, that will flow much more easily from there. That's really interesting, Jordan, because if you think of the, of the law professors that, you know, we would have had, they wouldn't have known how to integrate that at all into their classroom. And quite to the contrary, as you've said, they would say, well, you're not paying attention to me if you are doing this. And so it, it, how to also teach these the professors and and think about the um, the people who are communicating how to integrate that is a is a huge challenge well that's such a good point Corey because again something that's that's going to emerge from this the traditional law school idea is that you have one person who fills who fills two roles and that that person is a professor and this person's number one job as any prof will happily tell you is to publish and to research and to get cited and so forth that's that's where all their metrics drive them towards and in between, they also teach classes. And what I find, generally speaking, is that your average professor, your typical professor, is really good at one of those things. Rarely are they good at both. What this opens up is the possibility of, you know what? Maybe you have some people who just do the research, and maybe you have some people who just do the teaching, and that's fine. 
right? And again, that's it's it's just a different way to envision the whole setup. At, at the end of the day, you know, forming lawyers in law school is fundamentally about developing competent lawyers, right? And so it's interesting that you say that about professors who are there to pursue their own research goals, uh, and that may or may not align with uh, the goal of developing competent lawyers. But to pursue this discussion a little further, I want to get into, I want to start off also a little bit by asking you guys, how would you define what it is to be a competent lawyer? Because we need to know that we need to set those ground rules a little bit if we want to think about changing uh, legal education, do we not? What, what do you think, Corey? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we, we have our code of conduct that sort of sets out what we define formally as a, as a competent lawyer, which is really some of the traditional things like being able to identify legal issues, advocate for your client, all of these things which are important. But increasingly, and I think this is where we need to focus more attention, uh, it also means being able to deliver appropriate customer service. It means being able to manage your files, being able to manage your business, being able to manage client money, um, being nimble and tech savvy, being able to adapt to clients from different backgrounds and um, you know, different socioeconomic scales. And so the, the set of competencies that we've traditionally asked for have been very focused on those substantive and traditional areas. But from my perspective, wearing a law society hat, I, I think all of these other skills, um, which really are about delivering good client service and helping your client, uh, are what we need to be shifting our focus to. Jordan? Two key points here. The first is, when you look at the makeup of the legal profession in Canada today, and you go to the Federation of Law Societies Canada website, and the most recent set of statistics they have is for the 2017 year. And that year they reported roughly 127,000 members of law societies in Canada, the vast majority of whom are going to be lawyers. Of that group, 66,000 are classified as practicing member insured, which means essentially that they're in the private practice of law dealing with clients of various kinds. 32,000 roughly are, are practicing members exempt from insurance, which I take to mean lawyers who work for in-house in uh, counsel, law departments, public sector lawyers, uh, perhaps administrative tribunals, this type. They're, they're, they're providing services of some kind, but they're not in a way that they require to be insurance coverage. And then about 26,000 are what you call non-practicing members, right, of which I am, I am one. So when you look at it that way, you realize only, over, only slightly over half of all lawyers in Canada are in the private practice of law. And yet everything about our structure of lawyer, everything, lawyer regulation, lawyer formation, lawyer discipline, lawyer education, is all geared around the private practicing lawyer. Every code of conduct, try finding, a, take a code of conduct and try to find the section about in-house lawyers. It's maybe one out of 35 uh, different entries. So. So one of the things we have to think about for competence is what are the universal elements of competence? And I'm coming in for a landing. Uh, for me, universal, which like everybody should be able, it doesn't matter what you are. If you're a lawyer, you got to have this. You have to possess a strong, set, a strong personal character, right? You've got to have that honesty and integrity and trustworthiness. You have to have really strong ethical knowledge and judgment. You need to know the rules of professional conduct and recognize them when a need comes up to, to apply them. You have to be able to advise people clearly and effectively about a law-related matter. That covers a whole bunch of stuff, obviously, right? But, you know, answering, the, answering questions of law, carrying out legal research, consulting where necessary outside your areas of expertise, blah, 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 right? 
And then a fourth one for me would be to, you'd have to be able to organize and manage all aspects of your work. And, and the other reason that I choose these four is that 99% of all complaints about lawyers fall into those four categories. And to me, that's universal competence. I think that we have to be able to articulate a little bit more what we mean in each of those categories. And I'm with Jordan completely, though, that, that, and this is something we're talking a lot about in Alberta right now, and that is that proportionate, relevant um, training of lawyers at different stages of, of their career. So those four elements would have different meaning at, at, at different stages and depending on, on your practice area. So I, I, see, I do see them as universal, but I do think we have to be able to get a little bit more granular with, with some of them, particularly, and if we are talking about things that ground complaints and claims, uh, we are talking about customer service. We are talking about that that, that is a, a fundamental, and those words are so rarely used in talking about competence and talking about lawyer skills, um, but, you know, client relationship management is fundamental and it is not something that we, that we talk about at law school. The other thing about what's uh, one, maybe it's an oddity, maybe it's not, uh, about uh, the legal sector is that there are several players who are involved in forming lawyers. You know, we have uh, law schools, obviously, law societies play their role and law firms uh, or even legal departments. How would you evaluate Corey, how they're addressing meeting those those competency requirements? Well, there's you know each player has a has a role, I suppose, um, but but we don't really measure how they're doing in any of these areas. We measure students in law school. We we measure whether students pass bar admission. We certainly don't don't measure uh, anything to do with articling. There's very little accountability in that in that sphere. Uh, you know, I, I think that that um, in the bar admission sphere, certainly in Alberta, we've been doing a ton of work in that area, and our, our new program is launching this uh, this summer. Um, I, I think that that law societies are are trying to address some of these issues, but are really struggling in the best in the best way to do it. And we're all experimenting a, a little bit, but we certainly understand that there's a problem, that the bar admission processes that we have are likely not meeting the needs of, not meeting demand, not meeting the needs of the students um, and need to be uh, evaluated and, and need to evolve. And then, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about the role of firms and, uh, and, and articling because I think while so many of us when asked about articling can, you know, regale stories of, about their terrific principle and all the wonderful opportunities they have. And anytime you raise the subject, people are more than happy to tell you their stories about their articling year. Uh, but it's so terribly inconsistent. And as we discovered in, um, in a survey that we recently did in Alberta, it is, it is very, very spotty. And uh, I, I think Law societies in particular, but everyone involved in legal education on the on the uh, on the continuum needs to really critically analyze um, what's happening in that space and if it is advancing the competencies that we've just that we've just talked about. You know, are uh, are young lawyers learning those competencies that we've we've identified um, in their articling term and, and is it and is it effective? And of course, in some cases it is, but in in many cases it's just not. 
I mean, I think you're speaking to uh, you're speaking about the survey conducted uh, by the law societies of Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan mm-hmm. last year, right? And and according to that survey, I think the the headline that came out of it was that almost a third of articling students and new lawyers in those three provinces reported experiencing discrimination and harassment during recruitment or articling. Yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty bad indictment of the articling process, isn't it, uh, Jordan? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, it, first of all, there's a question of, is the program doing what it's supposed to be doing? Okay. And as, as Corey says, it's very difficult to be able to tell if that's the case outside of anecdotal data, of which we have plenty, but it's not very reliable. Um, but in addition to the question of, is it even doing what it's supposed to do? It's all the things it's doing that it's not supposed to do that are really bad. Um, you know, and, and, and that it's, so that alone is, is there's, there's no shortage of reason for us to put articling under an extremely harsh light and say, you've had chance after chance after chance to get this right. How many law society uh, inquiries of all kinds have gone into articling over the years? I mean, in, in my time and the Ontario bar, I think we've had at least four, you know, and, and we keep going back at this again and again and again. How do we fix it? How do we improve it? And so forth. At a certain point, you kind of have to ask yourself, maybe we're trying to fix something that is fundamentally unfixable. Maybe we're trying to repair something that is not worth the repair effort. And, and I think that is going to become a very live question over the course of, well, quite possibly months, but certainly I think years uh, in, in the very near future. How is the Law Society of Alberta uh, looking at this issue, uh, Corey? Well, uh, with, with Jordan's help, in fact, um, <laughs> Jordan's going to be working with us a little bit on, uh, on some of this. We actually are in a, a pretty good position in Alberta to be doing this evaluation in the sense that we, we do have this new bar admission program called PREP, the Practice Readiness Education Program, which is really designed around uh, um, the, a lot of the competencies that we've been talking about. It is a online program, so it's already equipped. Um, there were portions of the prep program that were slated to be in person, but because so much of what they were doing was already online, they were able to transition very quickly so that the entire program is now effectively delivered online. Um, and because of this, uh, the nature of, of this program, which really does focus on training, uh, training students how to run a file from the very first interview all the way through to the closing documents and everything in between, including um, practice management skills, teaching on, on um, uh, accounting software, trust safety, so all, all of the sort of practical matters that you would have to address uh, in the course of a file. Because we have this program in place, we feel like it gives us a little bit more flexibility on what we need out of articling if we, uh, if we think we need to um, continue with articling. And of course, like many law societies in this pandemic environment, we have shortened our, um, our articling term down to eight months. So I think that we'll be able to, uh, perhaps by survey or other data gathering uh, methods, have a look at what the impact of a shortened article has been uh, in combination with this, uh, with this new course and really start to see um, what changes can be made. It could be that we, we need something, we, articles could be even shorter, or we could look at something more akin to the LPP in Ontario, where we, we look at placements. I, I think that we are, um, we're ready to have those conversations in Alberta. We're excited to have them. And 
the prep program is really allowing us to have them in a in a more accelerated uh, fashion. So quickly, the uh, so Alberta is uh, not alone in having uh, adopted this route, though you you have led the way in, in many ways. But so the other the other provinces are Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and most recently Nova Scotia, if I'm correct. That's right. So that is a um, uh, the prep pro- the CPLED organization and the prep program is a is a joint enterprise initiated with Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia. Um, which is terrific, joined us uh, a few months ago as well. Um, so we are all engaged in the PrEP program, which will help us get, gather data on the effectiveness of that program. I can't, though, speak for the articling uh, piece in the, other, in the other jurisdictions and, you know, whether they are, have a similar view to us, although most of them have also shortened their articling terms uh, during the pandemic as well. And so far, what, from what you've seen, is it more effective than the more traditional um, bar admissions process? Well, we've only, we've run one pilot in Alberta that just finished um, about a month ago. And the second pilot is midstream in Manitoba right now. Uh, so these are our, you know, our pilots to learn um, how everything uh, plays out for the students. And the reviews have been excellent so far. Uh, the, it's, it's a lot of work. There's no question. It is, it is a rigorous program. Um, but we've had excellent feedback from the students uh, so far. So we have every reason to believe that it's going to meet our expectations. But of course, the, the big cohort will start um, at the end of June and we'll have anywhere from 600 to 800 students going through it over the next eight or nine months. Uh, Jordan, uh, I mean, do you, I'm wondering, were you suggesting that, uh, you know, we could see the end of articling uh, be one of the consequences of this pandemic or could it, could the could the crisis accelerate uh, the removal of articling as part of the formation process yeah uh, I would say this Eve that articling as we knew it coming into this project that is to say articling as we knew it at January at the end of January 2020 um, I think that's done I don't think it's going to survive the pandemic and by that I mean that we are, and again, it's a question of how long the pandemic's going to go for, right? Um, but the idea that you're going to spend 10 to 12 months working in, in, in a law firm in this kind of capacity, that aspect alone, right? I mean, uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, and probably other provinces too that I'm not, I guess Ontario uh, did something similar, because of necessity, and quite rightly, in my view, uh, reduced the amount of time that was required for the articles. Okay. So if you can reduce it from 12 down to, down to 10, or down to 8, or down to 6, can, can you do 6? Can you do 4, right? The Law Practice Program in Ontario has a four-month work placement. The Lakehead University Integrated Law Practice System in your third year has a four-month placement. Four months seems to work just fine. Now, why is it four months? There might be a good reason. It might be established through scientific study and so forth. There may have, it may simply have been, that seems like enough. I don't know, right? But, but the idea is that if we know for a fact, if we're content to say after six or eight months uh, for an articling position shortened because of the pandemic, or for four months in the case of the LPP and Lakehead of, of experience with live clients in an actual work environment with real stakes, right? I mean, one of the things I love about the prep program, and I love its pieces, is the simulated law firm system they have there. I've had a chance to poke around in, in, in a little bit and it's just so great. It's cutting edge, it's groundbreaking, and it's exactly the kind of thing we should be doing. My only complaint with it is that it, we should not be starting this after people leave law school, right? 
and that's one of the reasons I love what I, I really like what Lakehead's doing because they're saying you know we can we can call, we can uh, integrate this throughout the whole process, but the uh, but but I think this idea that it requires uh, ten months or twelve months of article of, of being in a law firm and working before you can say I think that has already been established as not to be actually true, and if that's not true, what else is not true about arbitrage that we haven't thought about? Um, you know, and, and I've said before, and anybody who's been reading me for long enough knows I've, I natter about this from time to time. Um, but, you know, articling was never designed to be a competence assurance system. Articling is a vestigial remainder of the way lawyers used to learn how to, how to become lawyers in this country. And we've been asking it to do something it's not really meant to do for a long time. And the idea that you are essentially, you know, you as a profession are outsourcing to the private sector the entire most critical process of ensuring the competence of your new admission to practice is when you stop and think about it, kind of crazy, right? And, and as I'm fond of saying, as I'm overly fond of saying, if we were designing a system tomorrow to do this for the first time, would we come up with the article year? Almost certainly not. So what kind of skills should we be helping future legal, professional, legal professionals acquire, particularly in these early uh, stages of the career because we are talking about bar admissions and articling. We can talk a little bit later about beyond that. But thinking about grads coming out of law school today, what are the skills they're going to need to acquire, Corey? Well, the survey that we talked about, um, just starting there, which of course the headline was about discrimination and harassment, which was a really tough message to hear. But the other series of questions we asked was about preparedness for practice coming out of articles. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we had some pretty interesting feedback on that and, and some very clearly identified weak areas of training. And so some of the, the, the key weaker areas that the students and young lawyers identified, and keeping in mind, we, we surveyed uh, current articling students as well as lawyers who are one to five years of call, because we really wanted to have those lawyers who were out practicing and maybe had more ability to reflect back on their articling experience. Um, than just those who were right in it at the time. And the weak areas of training that were consistently identified were adjudication and dispute resolution, conducting matters, practice management, client relationship management. You know, so the stuff that, that people knew how to do that they said were strong were analytical skills, communication skills, substantive legal knowledge, and ethics and professionalism. And, and that's a, a clear, to me, a, a reasonably clear divide of things that are are hammered in law school and things that, that, that aren't. Um, and again, I go back to, uh, to practice management skills, client relationship management, and so on. And I think that, that those are areas that we really have to put some focus on. But I think we also, and, and Jordan can speak to this much more than I can, we also really have to be a lot more forward-looking and thinking about how we create or encourage creativity and nimbleness and uh, technological um, knowledge uh, to be able to equip lawyers to actually respond to the needs to the needs of their clients, because leadership skills, project management skills, all of those things that really are uh, are needed by um, by the public, and I think the public are looking to lawyers to help them with those things, and we do not equip lawyers very effectively with those skills. Uh, Jordan. Oh, number one, completely agree uh, with Corey, and that and that list of skills are, are is essential. And again, it's very interesting to see the self diagnosis that these new lawyers themselves make, and and that reflects, I think, reality. I mean, the the, the one quibble I would probably have is that I think most lawyers and most new lawyers in particular 
significantly overestimate their communication skills. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> you know, so so I think that's something that still needs to be worked on. But frankly, that's you know, you, you can go right back in the education system to grade five and start working on that. But that's a different story. I think we're going to have to get ready for the strong possibility that lawyers, starting from pretty much right now into the foreseeable future, are going to need independent business entrepreneurial type skills. Because I am concerned, as a for instance, that the class of 2020 and possibly 21 and not out of the question 22 is going to graduate into an absolutely shattered job market where it's going to be hard enough for them just to get an articling position. And that's an entire can of worms we can get into some other time. Um, but when it comes time for them to get a job, there are going to be not many jobs out there available. Law firms across the board are cutting back, they're, they're reducing their, their headcount. Um, and as and, and the last the last several recessions we have seen, um, not just in the law but in the other industries as well, when there are job losses and cutbacks in these recessions, when the recovery comes back, there are fewer positions left. There's been a lot of automation, there's been a lot of streamlining, and we don't have as many people working there as we used to. So, I am greatly concerned that uh, a lot of people are going to come into the law and they're not going to find the same employment landscape that people who graduated even three to five years earlier had seen. And so among the things we need to be able to give them are the skills and the tools and the confidence to the extent that's possible. We cannot put old heads on young shoulders, but and the support system in order for them to say, I gotta find a way to provide value to a paying customer in some way, shape or form. Whether that is, you know, it doesn't matter what, maybe I'm setting up a law practice, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm moving into technology, maybe I'm doing data analysis, maybe I'm re-engineering entire processes, doesn't matter. But we need to be ready for the fact that a lot of people are going to need to generate livings in the law in a very different way than they used to. I think a lot of people would agree with you there, Jordan, but that also presupposes that firms who are, you know, on the demand side for these for these lawyers and this kind of talent, that they actually want those skill sets in their recruited talent. It's not entirely clear to me yet that uh, we can reasonably expect that firms have changed how they view recruitment. I might be wrong about that. There might be some outliers and maybe more than just a couple of outliers out there, but where do you see, Corey, how law firms have evolved in the type of skills and type of talent that they're, uh, that they're, that they're, that they're seeking? Well, I've been out of the recruitment business for about five years, but I, I still feel somewhat connected to it. Um, I, I think there are some big cultural issues in, in this area, and I'm not sure that firms have changed that much uh, who they're looking for and what, what they're recruiting for. I think that there is still, um, and when I'm, I'm talking about big firms as, as a starting place, you know, the, the nationals and so on, um, it is a competitive environment, and those firms are seeking um, what they perceive to be the, the top students. And so, whether it's the, the gold medalists or the star mooters or, you know, whatever those those traditional um, sets of criteria uh, have been that, that demonstrate success at being a law student, I, I think are still predominantly what what firms are looking for. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been important efforts made on, on, um, on equity and diversity and recruitment. I think there have. I, I think that the, the notion of who fits with a firm, that that 
definition has 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 broadened uh, to some degree. But I think the table stakes are still um, academic academic uh, success and success at other markers in in law school. And um, part of the problem is that that students who come into the law school may come in for all kinds of reasons of why they're interested and they it focused on access to justice or they want to serve an environmental um, cause or they want to work internationally they can come in with all kinds of of, of really um, broad ideas but the law school culture still and our legal profession generally still narrows them into um, that notion that uh, really the best place for me to article and the the way i can say i've succeeded at this is to find myself at a, at a big firm. Even if they have no intention of making a career there, it is still a marker of success for a student to article it at one of these, at one of these places. And, um, and that whole cultural milieu is very narrowing on, on the profession and very narrowing on the skills that the skill sets that are, that are valued. Jordan, are, are law schools um, uh, guilty of promoting that view? Well, the best way I can answer that question, Eve, is to say the last time I went back to my alma mater uh, to give a lecture, I was told that I had to show up at the McCarthy Tetro classroom uh, directly across from the Fasca Martinville Library. So, um, you know, and, and that's fine, right? I'm not casting aspersions. I'm just saying that um, uh, I did not go to law school in the dark ages, but it is remarkable how the this idea, exactly as Corey says, that there is one true path or there is one superior path, and that is to work for the biggest law firms. But I'll tell you the one area where I wish law schools would step up and, and make, an, make an improvement here on this side, and that is the whole area of professional identity. And this is something which does not get nearly enough attention, I think, in, in, the, in the lawyer formation uh, arena, which is, and, and professional identity to me has a couple of elements. It's helping law students especially become aware, first of all, what is the role of and the relationship of the lawyer to, to the world, to society in general? What, what purpose do lawyers serve in our world? And then secondly, and more importantly, what, what is the role or relationship of the lawyer to you, right? What do you want to do or to be or to accomplish with this law degree you have, you have begun to undertake? Because I think the majority, possibly the great majority of people come into law school, they want to do it because they want to make a positive impact of some kind. They want to bring about a change of some sort, or they want to provide some help or assistance. Yes, there is still and always will be that cohort of people come and say, I'm here to make the big bucks, man. You know, the bros are coming in. That's fine. But you know what? If you, want, if you really want to make the big bucks, you're going into hedge funds. So fine. I think most people in law are into that. And, and they come in with this idea, I like to do this and they hear nothing about it. They don't hear about it from the professors, they don't hear about it from anybody in career, ser career services, not a knock against them at all. Their role in law schools is to help the students find work after graduation. That's what the student wants in their school as well. But there, there are, there's a whole lot of pieces out there, a really good one at Harvard Law School, John Bliss, I think, talks about it, where he says, students come in and, and they're kind of lost. They're drifting. They said, I, I, I thought I wanted to come and be an environmental lawyer. I want to help the, the poor, et cetera. But no one ever talks about it. And, you know, all the talk is about getting a job and, you know, the big firms and, you know, and Canadian context articling and so forth. And so after a while, they just kind of drift. And, okay, well, sure, I guess I'll just do whatever. And the disillusionment sets in really early. 
because they thought there was something more to a legal career than simply getting a job. And their, their first two to three years of law school experience does nothing to make them believe that's true. And, and, and so, and that in itself, that is a massive, that's a bigger cultural shift than anything about going online, anything about teaching practice related stuff. That is about the school looking at someone, not to say to the student, you're looking for an education, not to say to the student, you're looking for a job, but to say to, say to the student, you are here looking for a purpose. You are looking for an identity. You are looking for a role, and you believe the law can help you with that. We will help you find out what that is. That alone would be number one, transformative for the lawyer formation process, and number two, transformative for law school as we know. One of the myths that we hear over and over again from students, and, and I hear it from my, my friends and colleagues who are lawyers, say, well, you know, the best place to article is really a big firm. You can do anything you want after that. That's the, that's the place to start. So even for those students who have those other objectives, they are trained to believe that still, that's where I need to start because that will give me the most options. Look, I used to sell that Kool-Aid, um, but I just, don't, <laughs> I just don't believe it anymore uh, because I think if you, if you have that sense of self and purpose in your own profession, you know why you went to law school, then start there. Don't feel like you have to go to a big firm to get this broad set of, of training, some of which is excellent, no doubt, but if it bears no connection to why you went to law school and the work that you ultimately want to do, I don't think it advances your career or advances your skills at all. I do wonder if, you know, there are levers that the... The, this, the, the legal, the legal, that legal formation or law schools, law societies should be pulling to encourage that kind of purpose. Is there something that they could do? I, I think that, that, that it, it, it will take a lot of different levers because it's a cultural change. And, and culture change is very, very hard. And, you know, we always, certainly at our law society, and I think just generally, we, we laugh a bit about, about lawyers just being so slow um, on many changes, but particularly cultural changes. So, so where are the levers? Well, I, I think I think law school is a, is a starting place for sure. And I, again, uh, echoing Jordan, I I don't I blame career services uh, departments and law schools for this because they are they are doing their their job. And and I also know that they they do spend time trying to show students you know what the wide range of of possible um, um, career paths might be, but but we have to interrupt somehow at law school and early those messages around the singular path to success. Well, and I'll tell you, uh, a major lever for me, uh, Eve, around especially around the access issue, starts. It's in the law school, it's in the admission process, and it's in the tuition process. Um, I, I choose pretty much any law school at random and do a socioeconomic analysis of the incoming class, right? And, and I can almost guarantee you that the, the, they are disproportionately from the upper levels of the socioeconomic system in Canada or from wherever else they came from. One of the reasons, I believe, why we do such a terrible job uh, as a profession and as a legal system of serving the poor is that most lawyers have never seen a poor person in their lives. They didn't encounter them growing up. They didn't deal with them in law school. They don't know, they don't, they're not from those communities and they don't know what the world is like there. And for a lot of them, they'll never encounter it, right? 
they'll slide into a job in a, in a firm and they'll slide into here. And, uh, and, and so, so uh, and, it, and it's not possible, frankly, for someone who comes from a very low socioeconomic uh, background in most cases to go not just to a law school where it's going to be $25,000, $40,000 a year just for tuition, which is over 10 times what I paid 25 years ago uh, to get into law school, but the undergrad degree before that, which outside of Quebec you require as well, which is another at least $100,000. So the debt load is absolutely staggering. And I, I was giving a, a webinar to, the, to NELP the other day, National Association of Law Placement. And one of the last questions they asked me was, was about tuition. That was a bad place to end, end the interview with me because it kind of got worked up. Um, and I said, uh, the amount of money it costs to get a law degree has everything to do with the universities and the law schools. It has nothing to do with any other actor or player in this market. Right? There's, there's, no, you know, there's no driving force anywhere within the legal services market that says you have to spend a ton of money to get a law degree, especially when the law degree is, to my, from my opinion, largely indistinguishable from school to school. And as I said to a student the other day when I was talking about this, I guarantee you, your legal education is not 10 times better than mine was uh, 25 years ago. So uh, again, back to law schools. I mean, when we, when we handicap People coming out of law school financially, in terms of their attitudes, in terms of the what they have been exposed to, the complete absence of experience, right? Imagine, imagine, you, imagine you finished your medical degree and you never dealt with a patient, even in a simulated uh, environment for healthcare, right? That's what we're doing in law. So, so again, this is not a question of where can we poke around the edges and maybe put a fresh coat of paint on it. This is, it's time for a radical reconstruction, re-envisioning of this lawyer formation process. Some of that reconstruction also carries on into later stages of uh, the lawyer's career. I know you're looking at that. Corey, should we, how should we be thinking about uh, continuing education for more seasoned lawyers? But maybe I'm being a little idealistic there, but is there a way to fold in some of these access to justice imperatives in that process? Yeah, it's certainly something we're looking at uh, in Alberta. Alberta has always been a bit of an outlier on the continuing professional development front. Um, we uh, we have we've never had an hours-based system. We have a an a learning plan or a, a professional development plan system where lawyers were supposed to self-identify what their plan for the year was. They're required to include some professionalism and ethics. Um, even within that framework, in the last several years, we've made a lot of changes into the um, suggestion of what we consider to be professional development. So, you know, some jurisdictions would be quite limited in their um, uh, the types of courses that they would accredit, for example, for to count as professional development. And so they would have to be substantive or ethics-based or uh, practice management-based. We've really expanded that in Alberta already and include things like wellness. We include um, volunteering in clinics. We include um, cultural competence, um, and we've, we've really expanded what our, our definitions have been of, um, of, of what counts towards uh, professional development. But we also recently um, have realized that that, that program too requires a, a, a relook. And so we've essentially suspended that program in Alberta and are looking at, uh, at developing an entirely new, um, new system of, uh, of professional development. In, in Alberta. 
Well, you know, there was, it's not that there was anything wrong with it. I think it, it was very much something that was um, designed to be tailored to a, an individual lawyer's stage of their career in the sense that they made the plan themselves. But it didn't perhaps have the level of accountability that we felt um, it should when we are uh, trying to ensure for the public interest that, that you know, lawyers remain competent. Um, we also felt that it perhaps wasn't as timely and as relevant as, as, it, as it needed to be. And we just really want to do better uh, with what we're doing. We want to be able to um, uh, have lawyers look at this as something that is a, a significant value add. They understand why they're doing it. They're not ticking a box um, just to, to, to meet their law society requirements, but they understand its connection to the stage of their practice, their type of practice, and so on. So, you know, we don't know where that's going to take us. I, I think um, we certainly have an expansive view of, of what it is to be a competent lawyer at, at all stages, which I think will include certainly cultural competence pieces, um, certainly uh, um, areas around poverty law and um, unrepresented litigants, like understanding that broad base of, uh, of, of uh, clients that, that, you, that you may be serving. So I don't know, we're pretty, we're excited about it because we think it's an opportunity. Again, uh, we're working with Jordan a, a bit on this. One of the, one of the interesting things, um, and Jordan and I have talked about this, is that there really aren't any models out there in the world that are providing uh, particularly good inspiration on, uh, on trying to do this in a new way. So we do feel like we have a bit of a blank slate, uh, which, which we're excited about. And I guess I, the only thing I can say about, about access to justice uh, in this, in this scope is that Law societies struggle with knowing their role. Um, access is a, is a big, broad-based um, uh, issue throughout our whole justice system. And one, but I do believe that one of the key roles in, uh, in access for uh, law societies is doing what we can to ensure that our lawyers are competent um, and that are able to deliver good service to a wide variety of, of clients in, in a wide variety of, uh, of environments. So. Hopefully, we can achieve some of those goals as we redevelop the program. Jordan, what should uh, continuing legal education look like in in the, in the next ten years? <laughs> what should it look like? Not what will it look like? Not will it exactly? That's going to be bad enough. Um, I think Eve, that uh, again, as as Corey says, we have an opportunity to do do a serious rethink of what we're hoping to achieve. And again, it comes down to the question of what are we hoping to achieve? What is the purpose? Right. I wrote a post several years ago uh, called the MCLE question no one wants to ask. This is back when mandatory CLE was coming thing all of a sudden. And, and the question that nobody wants to ask about it is, does it work, right? Does it actually make for better lawyers? And, and I asked around and nobody, all the CLE people I said, I ran into said, I've never seen a study that, that has a causative link between uh, mandatory CLE and uh, higher levels of competence or fewer complaints or what have you. And I said, how about regular CLE? No, nope. never seen a connection between the two. Okay, so the, the, so, so the question we begin to ask ourselves is, and this goes back to Corey's point about the role of the law society, which is fundamentally to, to advance and protect the public interest, right, um, in, the, in the delivery of legal services. What is the interest of the public in terms of the ongoing competence of lawyers that they can do the job that they have, that they set out, that they say they can do, that they advertise that they can do and that they purport to do, right? As well as the fact that they are of good character and they are ethical and, and all these all these other things. 
So if that is the core of what you're trying to achieve through any kind of an ongoing educational or, or professional development uh, system, right, then I think that's where you, that's where you, from my, my point of view at this stage, that's where you kind of start the process of looking. And again, this, this is not just about, uh, although it definitely should be things like, you know, you should have a, you should have a particular system to let, let you know when your limitations are coming up because you know what, you might miss one, but it's also the broader uh, stuff. And, 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 and one of the things we have to get rid of is this concept of soft skills, right? They're not soft skills. They're actually really hard because most people don't, don't aren't very good at them. Um, right. And this goes back to client relationships and it goes back to people to, to dealing with people and having a degree of empathy and decency and so forth. But it also encompasses, I love what the law set of Albert is doing around wellness, right? That's extremely important. How, how many get anybody on from any insurance place and they'll tell you, a significant number of complaints and problems with lawyers, the lawyers having a massive personal or mental health or addiction issue and, and, and the, the practice fell apart around them as a result. Around cultural competence, to be able to interact with someone who is not from your socioeconomic background, who is not from your racialized background, who's not from your own gender, heaven, heaven forbid, you have to deal with someone who's you know, uh, you know your average dude lawyer of a certain age, it's like, oh, I don't know. So, you know, that level of, of that level of skill that we expect people to have in order, again, to be to answer the question, would you agree this person should be allowed to become a lawyer or remain a lawyer? So um, so I think start with the purpose that you're trying to achieve and then say, now we can look at methodologies. Now we can look at pathways. Now we can look at tools to help us get there. But as long as we know the purpose of what we're going to, because, again, if we're saying as we have been saying in the law for a long time, CLE for bankruptcy lawyer is, he shows up at, a, at, at a 10 hours worth of, of bankruptcy CLEs put off by the local bar association. That's not good enough. That's not the point. I'm afraid we're probably going to have to wrap this up because uh, I don't want to hold you too long. But I do want to, I've been asking this of all our guests, if there's one thing that you would like to see change in this field, in the field of legal education, because it is a complex and it is, a, again, always a multifaceted problem. But if there's one thing that you would like to see change in legal education, what would that be? I'm going to start with you, Corey. Well, you did tell me you were going to ask me this, but that doesn't mean that I'm any better prepared for the answer because <laughs> I do think it's a pretty tough question. <laughs> um, and I guess I'm going to go high level on it as opposed to, to something sort of uh, narrowly focused because, I, and, and this is really what we've been talking about over the last hour. And that is, I, I think we need to genuinely, and I mean, I mean genuinely in its purest form, shake our traditional way of, of looking at legal education. Uh, we need to have the stakeholders come together identify all the competencies that, that we've been talking about here in, in, a, in a clear way and figure out where students can, and lawyers can best acquire them, at what stage, uh, in what environment, and, and so on. Because I, I, it just goes back to being so tied to the structures that we have. And until we can, as all stakeholders, from law school admissions officers through to um, you know, firms who are training students, mentors, and law societies and beyond, until we can really shake those traditional constructs, it's going to be hard uh, to move the dial in, in a significant way. So um, 
I'm sorry if that's if that's too high level, but the fundamental thing is we need to we really need to genuinely shake up and uh, and realize that that the way we've been doing it is not going to see us through. And just very quickly to follow up on that, do you think that is a realistic goal? As difficult as this pandemic uh, is, it, it might be a little bit more realistic now than it was six months ago. Jordan, what would you change? Well, uh, and, and first of all, I have to say, I'm so grateful that you've often asked Corey first because it gives me a chance to collect my thoughts. So I, I feel bad because Corey have to, has to go first every time. Um, but uh, to, to, for me, two things. And one is, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, the whole idea of professional identity. I think that, ha that has to become standard procedure in law schools. It has, to be, it has to be a cultural change of the heart of all law schools view themselves. But the other aspect, which would be perhaps even just as challenging, we have to integrate exposure to legal work into the legal education process. Again, this idea of three years of class work and you're done, and then, and then, and only then do you get exposed to uh, the, 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 the application of the knowledge you have, you have accumulated up to this point. That's crazy. So I really like what Lakehead University does with their law school, the integrated program where they have, they have multiple clinics. In your third year, you've got a, like a four-month placement. And this replaces articling, right? This, because of this, they don't have to do articling because it does it as well, or frankly, I would say, much better. Um, the whole idea of uh, being able to, like, I think every law school should have a clinic, and many law schools do, but every law school should have multiple clinics, and more to the point, you should, it's not, taking one of these uh, clinics, number one is mandatory, every student's got to do it, number two, yes, you get course credit, but number three, you get competence credit for it as well, right? This uh, work that you do in one of these clinics is enough for the regulator to say, the fact that you have worked there because we have investigated this clinic and we have given it our review and we say, yes, the level of instruction and, uh, and learning and practical hands-on experience and oversight is such that we agree this meets enough standards for us to count as competence, right? But this whole idea of siloing the education of law from, the expo from exposure to the application of law absolutely has to stop. It is, again, we would never, if we were starting this from, the, from scratch tomorrow, we would never do it that way. Uh, Lakehead did not. Lakehead started a brand new school and said, we're not doing any of that. Ryerson, starting a brand new school, says we're not doing any of that, right? This is how we should be doing things. And uh, to, to anticipate your next question, is that realistic? I'll say this, it will be really, really hard, but it's extremely realistic, and I think it's going to be absolutely essential. It's one of the great things, you know, and, I, and I, I was saying this to someone the other day. We often talk about we need to do something, right? I go out in my backyard and say, you know, I really need to look at that shed. I really need to, to do some work and prop it up. But if I come out one day after windstorm and that shed is in pieces on the ground, it's like I need a new shed, right? And we are very close now to that second definition of need. We need something new. And, and an optimistic note to end this interview. So thanks. I've been talking uh, with Corey Gitter, the Deputy Executive Director and Director of Professionalism and Policy at the Law Society of Alberta. Corey, I'm sorry for asking you all the questions first. Okay. <laughs> and I've been talking with uh, Jordan Furlong, Legal Market Analyst and the author of the Law21.ca blog. Thanks both for joining us and to our listeners. Please join us for our next episode.
hear your views about what changes need to happen in our justice system and in the legal profession. Where do you think the key players need to focus their energies, and how do you suggest we encourage more experimentation in the legal sector? Let us know on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Wherever you listen to the podcasts, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juriste Branché podcasts. Mm-hmm.